Earlier in my life, I was uh, I pastored a church in Nashville, Tennessee, and um, we, the auditorium probably sat about 250 people or so. Uh, and on Sunday mornings, we'd have you know 120, 130 in there. Um, but on Sunday nights, the crowd would diminish. But on Sunday nights in the winter, it would diminish more. And in Sunday nights in the winter when there could possibly be a snowflake or two, in that auditorium of 250, there were about 12 people present. And uh, it feels a bit like one of those Sunday nights uh, preaching here. So I'm not going to aim just at them, uh, these folks who are kind enough to be here and serve us all by helping facilitate praise uh, and make sure this live stream goes out. Um, But it does have that Sunday night, winter in Nashville kind of feel in here. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 8 this morning. One of the foundational truths of Christianity is the idea of revelation, that Christianity is a revealed religion. God has revealed Himself to us. You see, left to ourselves, we would never be able to figure God out. We don't have that capacity. But God has condescended to make Himself known to us. He has peeled back the curtain between the infinite and the finite so that we finite creatures can have a peek. So God reveals Himself in nature, giving us a general sense of His power, His majesty, His godness. But He also reveals Himself more specifically in the Bible, using human language to communicate all that we need to know about Him, who He is, what He has done for us, how He works, what He requires of us. And He's revealed Himself most fully in a person. Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh, so that when we see Jesus, we see God. When we hear Jesus, we hear God. When we know Jesus, we know God. The link between God's revelation being wrapped up so much in the person and work of Jesus is summed up in this way in 1 John 2, that no one who denies the Son even has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So through creation, through the Bible, through Jesus, God reveals Himself. And what's interesting is that as we take a look at these various bits of revelation, something is actually revealed about us, too, as we look at them, so that as we see the power and majesty of God in creation, we should also think how small and impotent I actually am. As we see the righteousness of Jesus, His purity in thought and in word and in deed, we remember that there's no one righteous among us. There's no one like Him, not even one. And when we look at the Bible and we see the perfections and holiness of faithful of, faithfulness of God, we, we really, it's revealed how far short of His glory we really have fallen. So in many ways, the Bible is both a lens and a mirror. It is a lens by which we see God and His glory clearer, and it is a mirror 
in which we see ourselves, our sin, our need more clearly. And when we look into this mirror, we must come ready to change, to hear the Bible's words, take its correction, and change. So that James 1 puts it this way, if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The Bible is both a lens and a mirror. And as we come to 1 Samuel 8, one commentator has rightly said that it's like looking in a mirror. Because we don't just see the Israelites here, we see ourselves. So as we study this morning, let's not only look through the lens to see them, let's look in the mirror to see ourselves. So we're going to read all of chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is what the Spirit says. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations." But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then... Obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to his, be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants." He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. 
Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we pray that by your Spirit you will teach us that we will not be so focused on seeing this chapter as a lens to view and evaluate the Israelites that we would miss looking at it as a mirror to view and evaluate our own hearts. We pray, God, that you will speak to us. We pray and awe, pray for all those who are watching via live stream, that they're in their living room with their children and I pray, Lord, that you will limit the distractions that are among them during this time, that, they, that we all might hear your word so that we might heed it, be warned by it, be challenged by it, be corrected by it, be changed by it, so that we might be more like the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. There are a few things I want to note from this chapter that help us to see not only through the lens but in a mirror. Now, normally I give the main idea right up front. What I'm going to do is we're going to make a running case and then we're all going to sum it up right at the end. This is what this chapter is really all about. But I think we need to make the case, see what's happening first this time. The first thing we see is that God's people want a substitute. God's people want a substitute. As chapter 8 begins, there is a real problem. Here is an aging leader whose sons have gone astray. Well, now that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Only a few chapters ago, we looked at Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. These are priests who should have been serving the Lord by serving His people, but instead, they used God's people to serve themselves. And here, Samuel's sons, Joel and Abijah, do the exact same thing. Samuel makes them judges to carry on the work of the ministry, and unlike with Eli, who would have seen his sons day in and day out, his boys are 60 miles away in Beersheba, and they should be serving God by serving the people, but this is what uh, the Word says they're doing. Verse 3, his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. In other words, they see ministry as a way to line their pockets rather than love the people. Now, this is a real problem. It is a serious problem. Something needs to happen. And remember, with Hophni and Phinehas, God intervenes and punishes them and replaces them. So, if you are the Israelite, what your natural instinct should be is God will take care of them. We should actually go to God with this problem. The right way to respond is to ask the Lord to intervene, put it before Him, ask Him to act, call a prayer meeting, declare a fast. But the people don't do that. They have their own solution. Look at verse 4 and 5. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations." They don't want God to solve their problem. They don't want God to administer justice or deal with the sin. They have a better idea, a very practical idea. 
Let's get a king. I mean, and it makes sense in their minds. If judges can't get it right, we look around, look at all these nations. They have kings. Maybe that's what we need. The judges' system isn't working. It was nice for a time. But you know what? We need to keep up with the times and throw out the judges' system and bring in the king system. If we're not getting the results we want out of this, let's just find a new method. I mean, this kind of thing happens in churches, doesn't it? You know, if this program isn't producing the converts that we think it should, we're going to toss it out and we're going to bring in a new one. Oh, you memorized that outline when you were, you know, 10 years ago? Well, that outline's not working. That evangelistic outline's not working anymore. So we're going to throw it out and we're going to put in a new, fancy, shiny, easier outline. And this thing's going to work, guaranteed. I mean, if the worship service isn't appealing enough to non-Christians, what we need to do is we need to design a new one. If the pastor isn't producing the door-busting growth that we hoped he would, well, he's easy enough to replace. Just get a different one. It seems so reasonable. It seems so logical. You look around, you find the system that seems to work, and you work the system. But friends, do you know what this really is? It's idolatry. Now, sure, it doesn't seem like it because they put away the false gods in the last chapter. And because, you know, I mean, this sounds just like a rational, it sounds like they just had like a board meeting or something and said, this is what we need to do. We need to get a king. what, What do you mean this is idolatry? Well, just think about it. What we have when we, when we want to replace the judges with the king or what we see in the method-driven ministry of today, the results-driven ministry of today, is an ever-evolving, new and improved idolatry. It's looking to something or someone other than God to be the source and sustainer of God's people. When I put it that way, doesn't it sound a whole lot like idolatry? These folks want a substitute for God. Earlier, they worshipped the false gods of the Canaanites. They're not doing that anymore, but now their hope is in a new government. It's just new and improved idolatry. And Samuel can smell it from a mile away. He sees right through it in verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. That displeased Samuel is basically saying that it was evil in Samuel's sight. So it's the same phrase that's used over and over again in 1 Kings to speak of kings. So and so reigned in Israel, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This demand is evil. Now, to be fair, the desire for a king in general is not wrong. And remember, in Genesis, God promised a king. He said the scepter would never depart from Judah. In Deuteronomy 17, God even lays out the standards for the king to follow. It's not about the desire for a king. The problem is they think a king can do for them what God hasn't been able to do for them. You remember what God did for them, though? I mean, look at verse 20. This is what, this is what they want their king to do, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, any godly Israelite would know that God is the one who goes before them. 
They would remember the wandering in the desert and the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire and the leading. God is the one who goes before them. God is the one who fights their battles. My goodness, God made the sun stand still so His people could win. God wipes out the Midianites with an army of 300 to demonstrate that He's the one who fights for His people. It's as if they've already forgotten all that. And if, even if they have long-term memory problems, they have short-term memory problems. Look at chapter 7, verse 10. Remember what happened? As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines are pounding on their door. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. God is the one who fought their battles. God is the one who goes before him, but the Israelites don't want that. And they don't, they don't, you see, when they make this demand, they don't just want a king. They want to give God his two weeks' notice. They are basically saying, we need you to box up your stuff, leave the throne, security will escort you out of the building. We have a new and better way to be governed now. Now, in a surprising turn of events, God will grant them a king. But he won't do it without making sure they know this. The Lord, verse 7 and 8, The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. So if you didn't think it was idolatry before, God thinks it's idolatry. He's saying this is just like them forsaking me and serving other gods. That's exactly what they're doing here. They're forsaking me, and they're looking to others and putting their hope in one who is not God at all. They didn't learn in the desert. They didn't learn in the golden calf episode. They didn't learn over and over again. They didn't learn in the period of the judges. They didn't learn with the Philistines. They just keep going back. They keep rejecting. And so God will give them a king. We'll find out it's not going to be all happiness once they have a king the king that they think they want. But before we go on, let's look in the mirror here. I wonder what the substitutes are, the idols are, in our lives. Is it a relationship? Is it your family? Is it a job? Is it money? Is it, uh, if you're single, is it the idea of getting married? Is it health? I mean, what is it that you turn to when you turn from God to find a reasonable, sensible, rational solution to the problems of life? What is it that you're turning to if you're not turning to God? And whatever that is, that is the new and improved idolatry in your life. We should learn from these Israelites. Searching for a substitute means rejecting God. We shouldn't be like them. The second thing that we see here is not only do they want a substitute, God's people conform to the world. They don't just want a king, right? I mean, this is part of the problem. Look at verse 5 at the end of it. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And then in verse 20, 19 and 20, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. 
They see how the world operates, and they are allured by it, and they want it. In the words of the Apostle Paul, what they want to do is be conformed to this world. Yet this is precisely what God doesn't want them to do. God's people are meant to stand out, not to blend in. So listen to Exodus 19. God had said, "'You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation.'" Deuteronomy 7, "'For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth.'" Israel is to be holy unique, set apart, even when they do have a king, all right? They aren't supposed to be like all the other nations. That's why in Deuteronomy 17, there are all these regulations. You can go look at them later. But Israel's king basically is not to be power-hungry or money-hungry. He's not to collect a bunch of wives. He should be a man whose heart is dedicated to the Lord, who writes his own copy of God's Word and treasures it. Now, I don't know if you've ever done that sit down and write a passage. Maybe you were trying to memorize it or something, and you just write it. Most of the time when my sermon texts aren't, you know, a chapter or two in length, I will take the time each week to handwrite the text. And I do that because it slows my mind down to see the connection of words, to see the connection between phrases it helps me to meditate on God's Word to write. I mean, this is why in, in classrooms of old, you know, uh, children were sent to the blackboard to write, I will not talk over the teacher, I will a hundred times, right? Because the hope is that when they write it and write it and write it and write it, it'll be written up here and in here somehow. But this king must be holy. He's got to be holy because he leads God's holy people. And he's got to be holy to lead God's holy people because God himself is holy. He's to be set apart, but the Israelites don't want a king like all the other nations. They don't want a king. They don't want God to be their king. They want a king like all the other nations. It looks pretty good over there. I mean, you see how organized they are? They're always winning battles. Did you read the newspaper? They want another battle, and they've got a king. Why shouldn't we have a king? We should get a king. I'm actually concerned that the 21st century church in America is not so far from this, that our vision for pastors and pastoral ministry is driven more by the world's view of leadership than by the Bible's view of leadership. And sadly, many pastors are buying into it, being CEOs rather than servants, administrators rather than counselors, figureheads rather than shepherds, leading meetings without doing ministry. Now, I have to look in the mirror here, and so do our elders. We have to constantly evaluate what we are doing and why we do it. What has the Bible said that would drive us to do X, Y, or Z? What principle are we seeing in the Word that would inform that decision? And we as a church need to make sure that we are wanting from our pastors what the Bible wants from our pastors. Holy men leading a holy church because God is holy. 
So the leadership of God's people should be unique. Jesus said it himself, didn't he? He's talking to his disciples in Mark chapter 10. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. In other words, in other words, don't want to be a leader like all the other nations have them. Don't be like that. Don't conform to the world. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And why is that the case? Well, in the very next sentence, Jesus tells us, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. You know, the fact is, is that people, many people see God as a kind of cruel dictator who barks out orders and is just waiting to crush you if you fail to conform. That this is how God leads the world, how He rules the universe. And yet here is Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, God in the flesh, telling us what He's like, that He didn't come to demand to be served. He didn't come to be like every other king that had come before Him. That He actually came to serve. He lays down His life on the cross to meet our greatest need, dying in our place, taking the punishment we deserve so that we can be forgiven of our sin and made right with God. This is the kind of leader, the kind of Lord, the kind of king that Jesus is. It's the kind of king we all want, isn't it? The kind of king who would sacrifice himself to save the kingdom. And anyone, friend, if you are watching this, you can find that forgiveness, that salvation. You can be part of Jesus' kingdom if you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Why wouldn't you want a leader, a savior, a benevolent king who lays down his life for you so that you can live forever. Come to Him. And in the church and among God's people, and among God's people, those men who fulfill the role of pastor must follow in the footsteps of King Jesus, dying to self to serve others. But beyond church leadership, think about your workplace, your family. If you've been entrusted with leadership in any capacity, are you seeking to be served and be like everyone else? Are you seeking to serve? Are you a unique, holy leader? Or are you the same kind of boss, the same kind of manager, the same kind of parent, the same kind of leader that you might find anywhere? Well, God's people want to conform to the world, but the Bible clearly tells us not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The last thing that we see, not only do God's people look for a substitute, not only do they conform to the world, God's people ignore God's counsel. In response to the request for a king, God sends Samuel with a message, a warning to tell them what life will be like with this king. You want, you want a king like all the other nations? Let me tell you what life is like with a king like all the other nations. And in fact, the, what he describes here is not unlike what it would be to live under one of the Canaanite kings of that day. So listen to it, starting in verse 
11. These are the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and and your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. One phrase is repeated six times in those eight verses. He will take. That is the mark of a king like all the other nations. A worldly king. He will take. He'll take your young men. He'll conscript them to military service and work his land. He'll take your young women and put them in service in his household. He'll take your household servants. He'll take the best of what you've got and put it to work for him. He'll take the best of your crops. He'll take your income. And it's going to get bad. I mean, he says you will be his slaves. It'll get bad. They will get desperate just like they did in Egypt. Remember that? In Egypt, they, get, they are under slavery and they are desperate and they are oppressed. And uh, Exodus 2, 23 and 24, they cry out to the Lord. They're groaning under their slavery. And the Bible there says God hears and God sees and God knows. And then God immediately comes to their rescue. Well, even just in the last chapter, verse 8 And 9, chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, the people of Israel said to Samuel, desperate because the Philistines are coming, and they say, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it to the Lord, offered a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. What a wonderful pattern, isn't it? You see it all through the Judges, all through the book of Judges. The people groan under misery and oppression. They cry out. God answers. Misery, groaning, cry out, answer. Misery, groaning, cry out, answer. And Samuel is saying, misery, groaning, cry out, and there will be no answer. Verse 18, In that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. They have made their bed, and they will lie in it. And even hearing that, even with this clear warning, even with the prospect of suffering, even though God says He will not answer when they cry, the Israelites simply want what they want. Verse 19, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. You just imagine they're like a toddler here, right? I mean, they've got their eyes closed. It's like the, 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 the religious leaders when Stephen in Acts 7 is calling out and rebuking them. They're plugging their ears and they're 
closing their eyes and they're saying, we can't hear you, we can't hear you. And that's exactly what the Israelites are doing here. They're saying, we, no, 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 stop talking. We're getting, we want what we want. Give us a king. It's an alarming thing. I mean, we read those words and we wonder, how can they, how can they hear all these warnings and ignore them? How can they close their ears to counsel that will keep them from pain? But it's not unfamiliar territory, is it? I mean, in counseling individuals or couples, I have many times laid out what the Bible says and laid out the misery that continuing in sin will bring. And I have seen people hear it, understand it, and ignore it and continue to walk in sinfulness. I mean, how many, how many parents... Sit, can sit in wonder when their children won't listen after they warn them about one decision or another, and this will take you here, and this will lead to that. These are the consequences, and yet they didn't listen. And we're no different, are we? How many times have we heard what God has said, heard the counsel of godly friends, and decided, you know what? I know better only to suffer and to struggle. How true it is that the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. I mean, of all the voices that we hear in this world, including our own, the one voice we need to hear, the one voice we must hear, is God's voice. From His Word, God's counsel is perfect. It will never fail us. So when God speaks in His Word, rather than ignore His counsel, we should submit to it. It's a very sad chapter, isn't it? I mean, the whole thing ends, uh, Samuel, not that the Lord needed Samuel to repeat everything that the people had said, but Samuel repeats it to the Lord. Lord, this is what they said. They refused. They put their fingers in their ears and they said, we can't hear you. We can't hear you. We want a king. And the Lord says to Samuel in verse 22, obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. It's a sad chapter. The Israelites want a substitute. Israelites want to, they want to conform to the world. They ignore God's counsel. That, when we look through the lens of 1 Samuel 8, that's what we see about them. But if we see 1 Samuel 8 as a mirror, we see that all too often we do the same thing. And the bottom line is this. Having all that in mind, here is the truth we need to walk away with, is that if we reject God as king, we reject God himself. God is not operating a kind of buffet where we can take what we want and leave what we don't. You know, many years ago, and maybe it's still around, I don't hear it as much, there was this whole conversation about whether one can take Jesus to be their Savior 
but not take him as Lord. Because taking him as Savior sounds really good, doesn't it? I mean, I get forgiveness. I get heaven. That is awesome. But taking him as Lord, that's going to mean obedience, self-denial. That's going to be hard. And so there was this whole thing, but God, is, God does not offer us salvation in Jesus and say, look, you can take the Savior part, but not the Lord part. Jesus is either Savior and Lord, or He is neither. It is all or nothing with Jesus. And in 1 Samuel 8, it is all or nothing with the Lord. When we want a substitute for God, we reject Him. When we conform to the world rather than pursue holiness, we reject Him. When we ignore His counsel, we reject Him. What a different scene is. Now just zoom back a little bit and think about the contrast between chapter 7 and chapter 8. Chapter 7, the people are repenting. The people are believing. The people are calling out to the Lord in faith. The people are enjoying the salvation of God. And then in chapter 8, they're rejecting Him wanting to give His throne to someone else. We human beings are fickle creatures, aren't we? One minute we're calling on God to rescue us. The next we're telling Him He can step aside. As we look into the mirror of 1 Samuel 8, as you look into the mirror of 1 Samuel 8, what do you see? Are you rejecting God in one of these ways? What needs to change? Will you seek the Lord? Will you seek to change? Will you seek that change now, today? If you reject God as king, you reject God himself. Don't reject God. Submit to him. Live for Him. Seek to please Him. Don't look for substitutes. Don't conform to the world. Don't ignore His counsel. Rejoice that your King is the King of the universe. And all that He decrees and all that He does is for His glory and our good. Rejoice the Lord is King. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before You. And bowing is right. Whatever our posture may be, it is right that we bow before You because You are King. The earth and the sea and all that is in them belong to You. You rule and reign the universe with perfect justice. And we come before you to confess that so often we are as fickle as the Israelites about whom we read this morning. Our faith is so often like shifting sand. We thank you that the assurance of our hope is not on the absence of fickleness in us, but the presence of faithfulness in you. For if it depended on us and our ability to not be fickle, we would surely fall and fail. 
And Lord, recognizing that, we plead with You, asking You to give us grace that we would not be fickle in our ways. Help us to see that You are the only true and rightful King and that we need no other substitute. Help us to avoid new and improved idolatries. God, help us to see that conforming to this world is to conform to a world that will go to judgment. Help us instead to be holy, because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Lord, give us grace to not be hearers only of Your Word, but to be doers to be those who hear the words of Jesus and do them and have lives that are built on the rock so that when the rains come and the storms rage and the winds beat against our lives, we will stand sure. Thank You for this mirror and all that it has said to us. Help us now to heed its words and obey its words for Jesus' sake. And in His name we pray. Amen.